3: Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to Katie's Crib, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Katie's Crib. Um, As you guys know, we are working really hard this season on the topic of raising anti-racist kids. So I am really excited to have today's guest on the podcast. His name is Ramon Stevens, and he is the executive director of The Conscious Kid. The Conscious Kid is my favorite, one of my very, very favorite Instagram follows. Follow if you can. It's a nonprofit profit that promotes access to children's books that center on underrepresented groups and authors. Ramon and I talk a lot about having critical conversations about race with your kids at a very young age and how reading books can be such a great jumping off point. It's just so helpful to know, like, take a look at your own children's libraries, you guys. Like, what type of books are you reading to your kids? Is everyone represented in those books? Are there some authors that are questionable? Ramon and I actually talk a lot about a very, very, very famous children's book author who you might want to reconsider being part of your children's library. So, Oh, a little bit about Ramon because he's brilliant. He's a PhD student at the University of California. Uh, His research focuses on recruitment, retention, resilience, and student voices for marginalized populations in the educational spaces. Whoa. Oh, and he's also an amazing father. So here we go, guys. Here is my conversation with the one and only Ramon Stevens from The Conscious Kid. Ramon, you're impressive, you're smart. We're oh. very lucky. And you're in the select few of men we have had on Katie's <laughs> group.
4: <laughs> no, much appreciated. Much appreciative. I'm, I'm still a student learning, so I appreciate, the, I appreciate you having me here. It's, it's super humbling, and I'm so honored.
2: Oh, my gosh. I, I, I am part of this group. There's millions of us of white moms who mm. are waking up way too late to my Mm. white privilege um, and just freaking out seeing how already systemic racism is prevalent in my household and in my parenting of my child and just learning these things. And your Instagram account, you guys, The Conscious Kid, uh, has really been such a tool to me. Tell me why, how you started this Instagram account.
4: Yeah, so what's interesting is out of most entrepreneurs, you know, businesses are started out of personal need. So my partner and I, you know, I'm black, she's Japanese, my kids, you know, they're obviously mixed, they look very black. Mm -hmm. So we were looking for books to affirm their identities and affirm who they are. And so we remember going to our local library, which had like 10s of 1000s of books. And we were like, you know, can you bring us any books that have black children? And she was like, Oh, like, I could tell the little being saying black kind of (laughs) like, alarmed her a little (laughs) bit. (laughs) And uh, she had no way to look it up on the computer. There wasn't, like, a query for it. And she was gone for, like, several hours and then came back with this post-it note with three books. One of the books I remember was a, was a black girl praying to God that her hair wasn't nappy, and the other two were equally disempowering. Uh. And, and, I, know, I know. And so and so we're like, you know, maybe maybe this is just this library, right? So we start doing more research and going to the libraries, and then we find out that this is, like, a national systemic problem. There's a major gap in representation of kids of color and particularly black kids. And then even more so of the books that you can find, most of them are not written by black folks. So it'll have inaccurate messaging, problematic narratives, and those narratives will be appropriated, which essentially drives income out of the black community. So um, as we start talking to other parents in our circles who are also parents of color, we're like, you know, how are you doing? Are you finding books? And they're like, no, we can't find anything. And so we just spend all this time doing research and we're like, you know, let's just make this a project and start spreading these resources to parents and families and educators um, about how to, A, get access to these books, but then also start understanding, you know, how do we have these critical conversations about race at a really young age so we can start to push back against some of this systemic um, racism.
2: What I'm so impressed by it is that it's like you guys are vetting these books. Not Mm -hmm. only do they have characters that are Black or mixed Mm -hmm. or have different hair, different eyes, different backgrounds, all of these things, but they've been authored by Black authors. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. you're you're doing the vetting for us, (laughs) which is, I really appreciate it because I'm trying to help my kid immediately. <laughs>
4: sure, sure. Yeah, so we teach critical race media literacy. Um, it's also referred to as critical media literacy. And what that does is that just looks at all the different ways when, of how to consume media critically, whether it's books, whether it's school curriculum. And to be honest, it's a, it's really an orientation of your whole life, right? And at the root of it is critical consciousness. So it's being able to question these systems of inequity, not just in the content, but behind the power structures that created the book itself, who profit off it, who owns it? What are the interests? You know, Ugh. what characters are being centered? You know, um, where does the money go? So all of these different things kind Whoa. of go into yeah. And, and there's, cause there's, there is, there's all, there's all these books out, but a lot of folks are just kind of throwing out narratives to, I think, capitalize financially on these racial conversations, which is terrible because what terrible. it does is reproduces like all of these racial inequities and understandings of race. So by going through the messaging, looking at the positions of the characters, who's centered, who's invisible, um, Who has the power to tell someone else's story, right? What is that? How does that shape the narrative? Um, All of these kind of going into the selection of literature and media and content that that we put up on our Instagram and share with educators and families alike.
2: I love that. We just had on Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Oh, my God.
4: She's amazing. (laughs)
2: She's amazing. But we we talked a lot about how to be critically conscious and how to teach that to your kids. And so what's amazing about your Instagram is like, you're looking at these books through, like she's talking about a critical lens to make sure of all of these things. And I feel like if you can help teach yourself to have a critical consciousness Mm -hmm. and then your children model after you to also think critically, like you said, it applies to so many things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, and so now we're seeing, thanks to The Conscious Kid and the work you guys are doing, that a lot of these classic books, they're just not great. They're actually extremely problematic. And one in particular that I came across in your work, which I had absolutely no idea about, is Dr. Seuss. You and your wife, Katie, you guys wrote a groundbreaking research article on it titled, The Cat is Out of the Bag. Orientalism, Anti-Blackness, and White Supremacy in Dr. Seuss's children's books. Can you share a little bit about your research?
4: Cat is all the way out of the bag on that one. Um, Yeah, so the Dr. Seuss project came specifically out of this narrative when we're talking about starting the conscious kid, where we were looking at the books in our kids' preschool. And I'll never forget my first year of my PhD program, and they were giving me a tour of the school, and there was like this Dr. Seuss statue. And they're like, and this is Dr. Seuss. And uh, my friend next to me, he goes, man, do you all know about all the anti- Asian-Japanese cartoons that came out. I, I had never heard of it, and I was like, wait, what? And so I go home, I talk to Katie, and I'm like, yo, you, you know, Dr. Seuss was super racist. Yeah. So we started looking up the cartoons and they were just horrific. Using the N-word for black people, had them dressing up like monkeys, had, had all kind of Japanese slurs. Then there was this narrative that was like, oh, maybe in his life he got better and changed. We're like, okay, well, let's, let's just look at all these books. I'm kind of just curious personally because we all grew up reading it. It's like a staple in every school. We're like, let's see, is it really changing? Because I don't know if you can really just shift like that overnight. So we went through his entire children's book collection and we covered for it, and we used all the critical media codes as far as like dominance, power, positionality, who's present, who's being centered, um, how are depictions of people of color, what is their position in relationship to the dominant characters or white characters in the books, and we're like, wow, of all the characters, all the black people all look like monkeys or have oh those stare, caricature God. faces. And then, so the argument was like, okay, it was Horton here. Here's who was supposed to be like this apology. But then we're looking at the book and it's got this like bright yellow face with these chopsticks. And we're like, there's still a lot of problematic stereotypes. And then the other one is, this is another one of his apologies. It's the Sneeches, where it's like, basically this a quick synopsis. is There's um, a group of people that have stars in their belly in the story. And then there's another group without stars in their belly. And the people without stars in their belly, you know, they're excluded. They feel sad. Um, and you kind of get picked on a little bit. Um, but basically the story ends when the group that doesn't have stars in their belly they get stars in their belly and they become happy and we're like... that that's a, kind of a, enforces a conformity narrative, right? Why, why can't those characters just be happy without stars, stars in their in their and be balance. happy sure. who they are, right? Sure. You start talking about savior narratives within books and mm-hmm. assimilating into these dominant narratives. Um, and so we're like, that's kind of problematic as well. I don't really know if that's an apology. And so all these patterns just cross all the literature. But when we dropped all the findings, it was like a, a bomb went off almost. And we're not the first person to find these things either. Like we cited other researchers, Dr. Philip Nell, for example, did a lot of work on this there wasn't anything that was new but maybe the ways in which that we packed up the whole thing it was kind of a an eye-opening for everyone because most of the studies weren't specifically naming you know there's anti-blackness orientalism um, all of these things and and then the depiction of women in the book right and their books are subservient i got the
2: whole uh seuss canon for (laughs) my (laughs) son's shower (laughs) and i have not opened them What's the feedback on Conscious Kid to all of these findings? Are Mm. you saying that we shouldn't read Dr. Seuss anymore? Because I am of the opinion that we Mm. should not. This
4: is a common debate, right? This idea, should we swap it out? Like, can we still use these books to teach about these things? The problem with that is that a, if we're going to teach about racism or marginality, we should probably use a lot better tools than learning from a racist. If I should I, <laughs> Do I want to learn about anti-Semitism from an anti-Semite? I no. don't think so. So although we can use these books to teach, there are much better books written by people from those communities that unpack those issues a lot better with children. The other problem with still using those books is that you can still reify stereotypes and unconscious bias not knowing that you're doing that as you're using it as a tool, still seeing all those problematic depictions and narratives of people of color and women, when there are zero women of color in any of the books, by the way, Mm. um, all of those things are still sending messages about what matters, who matters. Um, and if you're a young child, your brain is so impressionable that the things that you're exposing children to, you need to be extremely mindful of. So if you want to teach about equity, if you want to teach about patriarchy, if you want to teach about racism, go from people in those communities that experience it themselves and ha- have expertise yeah. on it.
2: You've also vetted nursery rhymes that are inherently racist or yeah. like I, yeah. I, just the worst. And, like, I'm retiring head, shoulders, knees, and toes. <laughs> Goodbye. Like, oh, yes, retired. Yes. That song is not to be sung anymore. When you were a kid, do you remember there not being books for you? And mm. do you remember the first time you read something where you found yourself reflected in the pages?
4: I very vividly remember this. So my, my folks were always trying to be pretty intentional about having, like, Black books in our house. But I knew that once I left that house and went to school, I was not going to be seeing any black people. And I can remember the first time I saw a black person. I'm not going to say I saw myself, but it was, we were reading Huck Finn in my second grade class. And I think it Mm -hmm. says the N word like several hundred times. And I was the only black kid in this class. And it was super awkward because the teacher was like, you know, you're not supposed to say it, but (laughs) she kept saying it. Oh it was so gosh. awkward. And I was like, I was she's like, cause it's written in the book and we don't want to erase this history. And I didn't, I was not engaged by the story. I wasn't really even sure how to react to that. I'm like, this kid hasn't talked to me all year. Now he wants to say the N word out loud during the book when he's reading it. And
2: what a memory, what a visual, like, ugh.
4: all of these kind of American canon books um, have so much embedded like white supremacy in it. So many other problematic things the first time I'm trying to remember where I actually saw a black person that I related to in a book probably wasn't until I got to college. Um, and I started reading, um, Tony Morrison. Oh, yeah. Might have been the bluest eye. I can't remember. Uh, but it, it was definitely Tony Morrison where I was able to see myself, started reading the biography of Malcolm X, saw it myself. But it wasn't until I got much older. Um, I didn't see him in the curriculum. I'm not going to see it in any of the books that were even available.
2: It's awful.
4: Because we grew up in the 90s, the colorblind era, most people weren't even looking about it. And even if you said something, it was like, you know, dragging your nails across the chalkboard.
2: Yeah, like, hush, hush, we don't talk about that, you know. I think my parents thought they were doing such a better job than their parents. Sure. Um, who were probably vocally horrible.
3: And <laughs> then they
2: were just, let's say nothing and be nice to everybody is what mm-hmm. we're going to teach. And everyone's equal. Right. And now – I know that is also obviously not working. <laughs> like people know we've got a lot of work to do. Right. Um, can you share any of the books that you read with your children to ensure that they saw themselves represented in the narrative?
4: Absolutely. I can remember like a really standout book that made an impact for them when they were younger. And it was a book written by Derek Barnes, who's a Black author, and what made his books unique is that he started focusing on black boys in particular um, because black boy narratives were just gone absolutely and oftentimes fall under stereotypes of either being some kind of pain narrative, you know, or they're trying to get out the hood or like, you yeah, know, like all those stereotypes. Yeah, 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 all those kind of deficit deficient narratives. And so he started writing these empowering books. Um, and so one of his books was called Crown, you know, um, and it's 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 about the power of black barbershops, and it's about this kid that goes and gets his first kind of fresh haircut, right? Nice. He wants to look fresh. Um, but we remember like our kids looking at those books, and they're like, "Oh, that's that's my kind of hair. I have hair like that." And oh, look how that's that's what Daddy did. We went to get a donut. And we had all these similar kind of kind of things. In sure. That. Another one is called, yeah, called Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History, which is great because it's a board book. It has all these different profiles of a lot of black women you've probably never heard of. Ugh. These great empowering descriptions written by this black woman. Um, so that is a great one, especially to, to entree for young children when talking about issues of it's race. It's also
2: so great for us because I feel like, I can't do a good job teaching a kid how to be an Mm anti-racist if I'm not also learning myself. I, you know, there's so many things I don't know. um, And I'm so behind when it comes Mm to, yeah, like powerful black women in history who invented stuff and made stuff and black (laughs) men like wasn't taught in school. Like I have a lot to do and then to get to show that to my kids. So that's a great idea
4: yes yes um we we'll be learning just as much i swear <laughs> as the kids we we're like oh did you know that i didn't know that i mean i knew that Did i I knew that <laughs> what's cool about books is that everybody learns it's like a family learning tool right and although it is simplified at a nice young age i swear like if you are learning about these concepts the simplicity and the accessibility of the language is actually really helpful for parents so um we always say like Learning and using books is actually a group experience. Everybody ends up learning from it. Um, I remember there's a children's book about George Crumb, for example, this black guy that invented the potato chip. I had no idea. Um, and what? You can,
2: yeah. That's amazing, though. Potato chip is my favorite food. Right? So the fact that I've never Googled who invented the potato chip is ridiculous. <laughs> the other thing I want to say about The Conscious Kid and why it's so helpful is that when you go to to all the books you guys have to list. What's great is you've listed what age. I think you're making it so easy
3: for parents to not have
2: to look up if it's age appropriate, to Mm. not, to be able to trust that the author and the topics and the themes in each book is something that we should be proud to be sharing with our families and our children Mm -hmm. is, like, all of the work. So you, for we so parents, it. just get the books, read them to your kids, but know that that's just a starting point. There's a there lot go. of action that has to take place after the books. And now, in this season's must have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition bombshell escaped fragrance, a free spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
2: Books are such a great way to learn collectively, as you said. But are there any other entry points to having these critical conversations about race with our kids?
4: It could be a children's book can be that starting point. It could be a simple something that they see in their everyday experiences that you relate it to. um, And then you build on it later. I don't expect them to be critical race theorists overnight at age three. (laughs) Right. right? But kind of one particular example is um, a lot of parents are talking about like, how do I talk to my kid about these protests and yeah. everything going on? Yeah. So I, I was talking to my my five-year-old son. Um, he was asking questions about what was going on. And so, you know, I, I just basically had this conversation. I said, you know what, you know, a long time ago, you know, there was some people that put a lot of, unfair policies and laws in place that are still around and not treating black people and people of color fairly in this country Mm -hmm. and people are outside protesting because they want to see a change Mm -hmm. Um, and so just kind of breaking it down really simple like that he immediately got it he understood it there's this misnomer that if you talk to race about a child like two you're going to traumatize them or or scare them but kids kids are actually very intelligent they they understand what's going on and the funny thing is that kids are very much similar to adults right they were very similar as far as the way that we learn things, using stories, using narratives, um, experiences in their everyday life that you can relate to. Um, these are all things that are useful when we're talking about kind of race in our experiences.
2: The, the thing that I think is so, mm. if I'm trying to think of not as a scary thing, but like an empowering thing that rather than my kid getting it elsewhere, well, it's already happening. I mean, the racism is there, like it's mm-hmm. there. So I have to get in there. You know what I mean? I have to get in there you know, in a developmentally appropriate way. But it's very helpful to me to hear how parents are having these conversations so that I can practice and figure out... um how I'm going to not be color silent,
4: right? Right. Just getting that conversation where we can at least talk about issues of race and then using that as a starting point. Everybody obviously learns differently. Some learn about it quicker. Some become more passionate than others. But once you have that starting point, you can build on that for life. And by the time they're our age, they'll be sweeping us under the rug.
2: Oh, your lips to God's ears. Like, please, I hope that is the case. Since you've started the Instagram account, I feel like there's even more going on. Can you explain how that transition has sort of happened? And do you feel like your mission has even changed?
4: Absolutely. So we started off, you know, with the children's book focus, but... We do have a lot of experience. We have over 15 years experience in this work. And so we know that a lot of these issues are embedded structurally within the laws and the policies and norms. So we've expanded just from doing children's books to doing research, policy advocacy, rent relief, basically, you know, a critical anti-racist space online, all the different ways that it can look. Children's books are just a starting point, right? When we talk about how do we raise anti-racist children, how do we raise children with critical consciousness? When you're doing this inequity work, you have to come at it from multiple different Different angles, right? And at the very, very least, it's like lifestyle shift, right? The conversations you're having with your child matter, but it's also about very much about what you're doing. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Do you live in a segregated neighborhood? Do you go to a segregated school? Mm -hmm. What kind of people are your children being exposed to on a daily basis? What kind of media messages are they coming through their household? Mm -hmm. All these different things, right, shape the ways in which we understand and interact with the world. Um, and so as the Conscious kid is mission has grown, it's just become more holistic in addressing advocating for policy change through the National Education Association where they decentered centered and are now supporting diverse books, right? That's a Yay. structural shift. Um, but it's also in the training for like organizations and companies that are learning how to um, not just donate money, but what's going on in our culture and our policies that may be inequitable that we've just never looked at, right? So um, growing into that piece, supporting families and schools, And then, of course, making sure that we're supporting youth directly through social media. So it's really just grown to be more holistic and look at inequity from multi-different points that we can try and push back and resist against. But um, I'm sure it's just going to continue to grow as the demand increases.
2: Oh, my gosh. You guys have so many followers but I feel like your followers are very active on your Instagram like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of commenting and like back and forth conversations and so I find like it's really become this awesome sense of community and as much as social media can drive people insane it also can really be this incredible right now Mm -hmm. especially this source of where me as a white mom I'm going Mm -hmm. to unlearn so much shit
4: (laughs) yeah
2: And now in this season's must have shades and patterns add the finishing touch with the limited edition bombshell escape fragrance, a free spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future.
2: You brought up curriculum um before I want to circle back. Mm-hmm. So as I've been discovering and talking to my white friends, family members mm-hmm. about like Black Wall Street, mm-hmm, Tulsa. Yeah. I've never heard about any of this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then you start to think, oh, what else didn't I learn in school? I really mm-hmm. don't know a lot about slavery at all. I really don't, mm-hmm. um, and honestly it wasn't until i worked on scandal and one weekend we were all sh- shooting in dc and we all took a tour of the african american museum
4: oh wow and
2: we were there for hours and hours and hours and i i have to say again embarrassingly so that was my first like really mm. deep dive into knowing a lot historically yeah about slavery um since you work so closely with schools and things what can we do about The curriculum and the school, like, what? what are we supposed to do to teach our kids the true history and the truth Mm. of why America is America?
4: Yeah. I mean, curriculum is is, is such a a deep issue because of how much it really does shape your child's understanding of the world, the ways in which they see themselves and other groups. So the work that we've been doing at Ethnic Studies basically looks at centering histories and stories of marginal communities and putting that in our textbooks and using those as kind of reference points. But it's also borrows from this notion of what's referred to as culturally relevant pedagogy, where it builds basically three themes, right? It's cultural competence, it's critical consciousness, and then it's also academic rigor. So we're using stories and narratives from people that we see in our everyday lives that we can relate to, that we can understand, right? But we're also talking about them critically, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going to also talk about it um, and learn about the cultural shared aspects of that person, meaning like, how does this person relate to or push back against dominant norms? And those norms could be segregation. Those norms could be um, no black people at your office, right? It could be a number of things, but ethnic studies looks at these stories of people that we've never heard of that made significant contributions to American history. People of color, we're talking about women, we're talking about Jews, We're talking about all these marginal groups that are left out of the history books that make up most of our classrooms and reflecting those stories. So when we have empowering narrative with diverse folks, right, it's great for everybody because the folks that are from those communities can see themselves in the text. But the folks that are outside of those communities now get, A, it could be their first entree even into that community. And B, they get an empowering narrative and more accurate narrative of what that looks like when we can get those stories from those communities. So
2: this has got to happen.
4: I know I know there's like a slight there's a slight movement that's gone on in California and Arizona and I think in New York it's popping up in a lot of different states but the other benefit is that kids actually do really academically as well because they're more engaged in the content because it relates to it. So and the cool thing about culturally relevant pedagogy, we can do it with math, we can do it with science, we can do it with English. Here's an example. So there was a science class in um, in Oakland. And so before what they would do is they would test like the waters of their ponds outside, you know, just test for like lead levels. But instead the teachers started employing culturally relevant pedagogy and they tested the water in the schools and they found all kind of lead levels. They took those lead levels back to the con back to their local legislator right. and was able to advocate for reform and get new pipings. Um, And then students were able to also take those skills and started applying it to their neighborhoods, right? There was uh, some of these high-income schools, they would, you know, make fun of these kids for for being poor, being low-income and saying they're dirty, they're nasty, what these kids did is they took the skills about how to document things, about starting with a problem first and then researching backwards, and began filming how often the garbage man was coming. And he was coming like three times less than any other neighborhood, took that back to their legislator, was able to advocate. So when students were able to basically see how the content in school actually could be used in their real life, people become more engaged because they understand how it actually works, right? Like, love George Washington, that cherry tree, but I don't know how that's going to help me... <laughs> deal with these police outside you know what i'm saying
2: right. <laughs> right or like for example i feel like i learned so much about world war ii yes. in school i've been talking about this and i'm like well of course i did it's like yay america we were part of the allies and we fought the mm. evil nazis who were like the bad guys in all of our movies for like the last like forever still, and, still. yeah and like we came in and saved the day it's like such an easy <laughs> sort of story to digest because like we were the white heroes and like yeah. we came in and made the world right again. But if yeah. I were to look back on what I was taught about slavery or the civil rights movement or the mm. Vietnam War or like oh anything gosh, where yeah. we're on the wrong side, yeah. it was completely not detailed, not specific. It was quick. It was yeah, like a little paragraph. Yeah, right? it just wasn't great. And I don't want that for my child.
4: Right. And it's also an unbalanced education. School shouldn't be just about helping people get jobs. It should be about making you a better person in life, right? Understanding the world better. And from there, you can figure out how you want to contribute economically or what that looks like from those needs. Um, But having those narratives of these different stories, right? This is what creates empathy with folks so they can relate and understand. And we also know that when kids take these like, classes with diversity and equity, it changes their future decision-making processes. That's like one of the biggest findings is that it changes the way you make choices about everything. And so when you're beginning to question things and like, maybe this isn't a good idea for me or maybe I am perpetuating something harmful, how can I reframe it and look at this from a different way? That's when we are able to find agency and we're able to kind of disrupt these systems because then it starts to become, like I said, that lifestyle, right? You can't really turn it off. You can't
2: go back. You can't and you shouldn't. Mm. Um, I just don't think until we're able to really look at our curriculum, honestly, I can remember I've been to Berlin a bunch of times. And when I go mm. to the SS headquarters museum, it's filled with mm. German first graders wow. looking at absolutely horrible images wow. of what their country did to people and did to Jewish people. And I'm like, powerful, yeah, but like, that's what we need to be doing. Like, yes, to slavery. And we need to be looking at everything and vibrantly so um do you think that will ever happen in our public schools
4: Ooh, that's a good question (laughs) um so this is what i think will happen based off of what has happened before we have these moments these really strong moments of reform we might have where we're able to disrupt or have these shifts but like with every great Progression. There's a degression. So we had Obama, and then we got the massive white lash, right? So, with every great social justice reform, there's a massive lashback. Like ethnic studies came out in the 1960s. That's like 50 years ago. But then the 80s happened, and Ronald Reagan, and colorblindness. That pretty much just sniped out the whole ethnic studies movement because people thought it was just like a bunch of handholding and it wasn't really relevant because we don't talk about race. So why do we need to have a whole class about it? Now we're starting to come back around to it. So if we can keep this momentum going, there will be change depending on the location you are in, because there are just some states that are going to be a little bit more pro-ethnic studies. And there are some states that want to hold on to those problematic um, kind of classic heroes that have, you know, done a lot of horrific things.
2: So we have a lot to work to do, and I can't thank you enough, Ramon, for coming on the podcast. In closing, I just want to bring attention to the incredible COVID relief mm. that The Conscious Kid is doing. I think it's a quarter of a million dollars. What have you donated thus far to Black families?
4: There's been over, yeah, over a quarter of a million dollars. Um, and then we have also did rent relief for general families as well prior to COVID, and I think that was well over a quarter of a million as well. I want to say close to half a million, to be honest. Um, COVID really looks at how um, race intersects with class to create additional layers of marginalization. And when we're talking about, for example, Black like mothers in particular, you've got gender, you've got class, and you got race all intersecting. Oof. And so we know that that creates a heightened need for resources. And so that's why in particularly we chose to focus on Black families who have been marginalized through COVID-19.
2: That's amazing. Your work is absolutely incredible. I can't thank you enough for The Conscious Kid, for everybody listening who's a parent out there it is such a resource and we're all on our phones we are all on instagram Mm. people don't pretend like you're not (laughs) um and what's great is it's important it's amazing and it's also positive and like wonderful because you give us a lot of action items so instead of just sitting Mm. there feeling like i don't know what to do i don't know what to do we'll go to the conscious kid
4: there you
2: go and (laughs) start with those books and reading um thank you so much for coming on katie's crib ramon you are awesome
4: Thank you, Katie. We appreciate it. And keep doing the work you're doing because you set a great example and you are modeling for your young child about allies that are trying to do work. So I appreciate you and thank you for for having us. Um, Yeah, we're big fans. My pleasure.
2: Thank you guys so much for listening to Katie's Crib. Please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends, tell your family. Oh, if you have a topic or a guest that you would like to have on the podcast, send me an email at katiescrib at shondaland.com. Katie's Crib is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.